In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 89, Psalm 89, starting from verse 19 to verse 37. This Psalm, in this part actually, David is reminding himself with the promises of God and the covenant that God made to David. So in verse 19 he says, Then you, God, spoke in a vision to your Holy One, who is the Holy One that will answer, and said, I have given help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. So here David saying to God, you spoke in a vision to your Holy One. Holy One is one of the prophets. And God said to this prophet, I have given help to one who is mighty. That's another one. I have exalted one chosen from the people. So God often spoke with his Holy Ones through visions like Prophet Moses, like Samuel, like Nathan the prophet. That how was the prophet in the old was called in visions. However, a dispute has risen among commentators whether to take these verses in plain literal sense as spoken of David or prophetical sense as referring to Jesus Christ. So when he said, I have given help to one who is mighty, is this David or this the Lord Jesus Christ? St. Augustine applied them to Christ exclusively. But in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, the word of St. Paul confirmed that these words were given about David. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after or according to my own heart. Others apply the whole passage to David exclusively. But as we'll see verse 27, I cannot apply it to David. I will make him my firstborn. This is about Christ. My firstborn is about Christ. So, I cannot say these verses are about David. Others said these verses partly apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and partly applied to David. But the best way to understand these verses that the whole passage intended for David, but in a relative way, not in a perfect way. But it is fulfilled only in Christ in a perfect way. So these verses apply to David in a relative way, but they are fully or wholly fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God has spoken this by means of vision or communication made to his people by the prophets. So who is the Holy One in verse 19? The Holy One is Nathan the prophet. Then you, God, 
spoke in a vision to Nathan, the prophet, and said, I have given help to David, one who is mighty. I have exalted David, one chosen from the people. So this vision was especially made known to Nathan and through him to David. So the Holy One in this context was Nathan the prophet, not David. The old versions of this psalm doesn't read your Holy One, but in plural it reads, you have spoken to your saints, plural, as referring to the people of Israel. So, you spoke in a vision to the people of Israel and said, I have given help to David, who is mighty. I have exalted David, the one chosen from the people. I have given help to one who is mighty. As David was so helped that he might deliver Israel from Goliath first. So, God given help to David and David delivered Israel from Goliath. And later on as a king, and David was able to deliver Israel from all the enemies around them. And David was chosen out of the people. What does it mean chosen out of the people? It means chosen out of regular people, not from princes, not from kings, but from his humble rank as a shepherd, and God exalted him to the throne of the kingdom. But again, this verse can be applied to Jesus Christ, as we said. Christ is the mighty one, and mighty even in his weakness and humility, as we say in him in Monogenes that we chanted on Good Friday, holy is the mighty, who revealed by his weakness that is more excellent than his strength. So, the mighty one is the Lord Jesus Christ. And also he is the chosen one. Chosen from the people. Why chosen from the people? Because he was born of a poor woman, not from royalty. To fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham and to his seed. And he was exalted on the cross in resurrection and in ascension. In verse 19, he said, the mighty one, the chosen one. In verse 20, he tells us who is the powerful man. And make it very clear, it is David. As we read in verse 20, I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. So it is David whom he had found worthy to be called and anointed as a king. So this verse can be literally applied to David who was anointed by Samuel. However, as I told you, St. Augustine maintains that even verse 20 refers to the Lord Jesus Christ in spite even of the word or the name David. Because he said in Ezekiel chapter 34 and in Ezekiel chapter 37, when he spoke about David, he meant Christ. And the anointed one in Psalm 45 verse 7 
is Jesus Christ. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. And by the way, the word Christ means the chrismated one, the anointed one. That's the word Christ means. And the Messiah, Al-Mamsuh, Al-Masih, the anointed one. In verse 20, I have found my servant David. Found means God did not just pick anyone, but he was searching until he found David. You remember when Samuel went to Jesse and Jesse started presenting his children from the oldest to the youngest. And actually the last one was David. And Samuel said to Jesse, God doesn't look to external appearance of a person, but to the heart. So the word I found as if God said, when I took him to elevate him, this proceeded entirely from my goodness. I start to search to find the right one. So the word indicates the care and providence of God in the matter. He did not choose anyone. He did not choose at random. He knew fully what he desired to have. God had seen a precious qualification in David. And in accordance with this, he called him to his service to anoint him as a king. Because he was man after God's own heart. And the name servant, I have found my servant David. That word servant here means there is no merit in him. But God called him and God gave him the qualification that he needed. So God described the many blessings that he gave to David. For example, God given him help, verse 19, exalted him, verse 19, chose him, verse 19, anointed him, verse 20. So here God, we can see the many blessings that God placed upon David. And David was anointed king three times. First time in Jesse's house by Samuel. Second time after the death of King Saul at Hebron, to be king only over the tribe of Judah. Then the third time at seven years later as a ruler over all the tribes of Israel. But also this verse applied about the Lord Jesus Christ. I have found my servant David with my holy oil I have anointed him. We know during the baptism the Holy Spirit descended like a dove on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ and he was anointed. So he is called the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one. Verse 21, with whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him. With whom my hand shall be established, also my arm shall strengthen him. Means my hand shall be established, God's hand will be established on David. Means God's helping hand shall continually be with David a stronger equivalent for the Lord was with him so when we say God was with David equivalent to my hand or the hand of the Lord shall be established upon David meaning God always will defend and protect him the people of God in general are really defended by God 
as if the strength of God is their strength. And because of this, if he is mighty, we also are mighty. And the history of King David shows how the Lord's hand and the arm supported David in spite of all the affliction. And if this is true of David, also it is true about the Lord Jesus Christ. About David, through God's assistant, he had many victories over his enemies. And about the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 22, the enemy shall not outwit him, nor son of wickedness afflict him. But David, at certain moment, the enemy had advantage over him when actually he committed adultery and murder. So this verse cannot be applied in a perfect sense for David. The enemy shall not outwit him nor the son of wicked afflict him. But this verse can apply it perfectly on the Lord Jesus Christ. No enemy could possibly have an advantage over the Lord Jesus Christ. But on the contrary, all who hated him were defeated before his face and were conquered and beaten. David may not be without enemies, and the power of God was always ready to maintain and to defend him. And historically, David never lost a battle. And all the attempts made against his life to kill him and to take the throne away from him ended in failure. Although twice he went to exile. And this agree with what Nathan said to David about that God will establish his throne and his son Solomon will be also the king of Israel and build the temple. But in a spiritual sense, this verse applies more in a perfect sense to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the enemy, Satan, shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness. St. Jerome says, son of wickedness is, is Judas Iscariot, afflict him. So according to St. Jerome, enemy is Satan, Son of wickedness is Judas the traitor. Scholar Origen explained the first clause, the enemy shall not outwit him. And he said, we believers help our enemies when we sin. So when we sin, actually, we give opportunity to Satan to outwit us. And thus it is that Christ helped them in no respect. Because Christ never sinned. So Christ never gave advantage to Satan to outwit him. Although they said, the people conspired against Jesus and said, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance to ourselves. Yet this counsel was useless to Satan and to the Jews. And their effort fell vainly to the ground. For the Savior rose again the third day and he trampled upon death and spoiled hell. End of the quote of scholar origin. Also, by reason of our sins, the devil can prove some claims against each one of us. So because we are sinners, Satan can make claims against us. But Christ is the only one who is able to say the ruler of this world is coming 
and he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. That's why neither Judas nor false witnesses before the Sanhedrin nor the chief priests before Pilate were able to bring against the Lord Jesus Christ any charge of guilt to him. But they were forced to acknowledge his innocence. As St. Peter said, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. The son of wickedness does not afflict him. David's enemies were often given one chance against him, and a temporary measure of success, like in the case of Absalom, but they could never repeat it. Absalom, during some time, he was able to afflict David, also he was his son, and drove him outside Israel. But at the end, God restored David back to his kingdom. This verse, nor the son of weakness afflict him, we can apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can see just from outside, apparent victory was granted to his enemies against the Lord Jesus Christ when they crucified him. But on the third day, when he rose from the dead, actually, he was finally completely out of the reach of their harm. So the son of weakness did not afflict the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 23, I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. So verse 23, similar to verse 22. God is speaking and saying that he will crush his enemies, showing that the power of doing this was not the power of David, but the power of God. In verse 22, he said, The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of weakness afflict him. Some people may think that David is so, so powerful. That's why no enemy can outwit him. But in verse 23, God is speaking when he said, I will beat down his foes before his face. Meaning, it's not the power of David, but this power was granted to him by God. So, the Lord's anointed receives full authority to defeat and crush all the enemy from God. And this holds literally of David, where he finally conquered every enemy that rose up against him. But also this verse we can apply it perfectly to Christ, before whose face his tempters left confusion, perplexed by his wisdom. If you remember when the soldiers came to arrest him on the night of his betrayal, they drew back and fell on the ground. So Christ triumphed over his enemy upon the cross. He bound Satan on the cross. And his foes, his enemies, were crushed before his face because the prince of this world, Satan, was cast out during the time of the cross. Also this verse I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him can be applied to the destruction of Israel and the temple on year 70 AD. Destruction that God brought upon Jewish nation who persecuted Christ and put him to death. But all Christ's enemies who hate him and rejected him to reign over them shall be brought forth and slain before Christ 
as we read in Luke chapter 19, verse 27. Verse 24, But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. My faithfulness and my mercy were with David. God continued to be merciful to David, and by showing mercy to David, he proved that he is faithful in his promises. So, these are the two attributes that David began to sing in verse 1. Verse 1 started by, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. So he was singing and praising God for his mercies and his faithfulness. Now he is saying this was a promise from God to David through Nathan the prophet, my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. David saw that these two attributes to be most prominent in the convent which he was about to plead with God. Because the last, starting from verse 38, he was speaking with God to fulfill his promises to grant him his mercies and to be faithful to his promises. Again, this verse, my faithful and my mercy shall be with him, can be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. How come? We are the body of Christ. So when we say God is faithful to Christ, means God is faithful to us because we are the body of Christ. His mercies upon Christ means God is merciful to us because we are the body of Christ. So, he is pleased with us in him. God the Father is pleased with us when we are abiding in Christ. And it is in Christ that all the promises of God are true and faithful toward us. Second part of this verse, in my name, his horn shall be exalted. Because his power is such that in his name, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, in the name of Christ, every knee must bow of things in heaven, things in the earth, and things underneath the earth. St. Augustine says, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Remember, as much as you can, how often these two attributes are urged upon us that we render them back to God. So as God is merciful to us, and God is faithful to us, we need to be merciful and faithful also. For as he showed us mercy, that he might blot out our sins, and as he showed us truth in fulfilling his promises, so also walking in his path, we ought to give back his mercy and truth. How? When we have mercy in pitying the wretched and forgive them. Truth in not judging unjustly. In not judging unjustly. Verse 25. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. Mean 
God will extend the dominion of David, the sea to the Mediterranean Sea on the west, the river to the Euphrates on the northeast. So the boundaries of the land will be between Mediterranean and the Euphrates, according to the earlier promise. But this verse actually, in reality, can be applied only to Christ, not on David. Why? He said, I will set his hand over the sea. David, he did not have authority over the sea, nor over the river. His authority was between the sea and the river. So David never had any power at the sea. David's power was limited to the land, the land of the promises that was between the sea and the river. While the king is spoken of here, the anointed one here is Christ. Why is Christ? Because his hand over the sea means he has authority and command over the sea. And his hand over the rivers means has authority over the rivers. So if has authority over the sea, rivers, and the land in between, consequently has authority over the world. For the sea surrounds the land, and river intersects the land, so that the sea and rivers comprehend the whole globe, which is expressed in other words in Psalm 71, where the psalmist says, He shall rule from sea to sea, from one extremity of the world to the other. And according to St. Augustine, his hand over the sea means Christ. Christ will rule over the Gentiles. The sea usually represents the Gentiles because the sea is salty, has waves, but the river symbolizes the children of God, the believers, because drinkable water can quench the thirst of the people, calm, not stormy like the sea. But the Gentiles and unbelievers are stormy, salt water, not drinkable. But God has authority over the non-believers as well as the believers. So the whole verse points to the extent of Christ's kingdom in the continents and in the islands of the sea, signifying that it should reach everywhere and be from sea to sea and from river to the end of the earth. Verse 26, He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Did David in any psalm call God my Father? Actually, David did not call God his Father. But the Lord Jesus Christ calls God his Father. He's, he is his Father, and mentioned God his father more than 60 times just only in the Gospel of John. So the first part, Christ speak according to his divinity. You are my father. Second part, my God according to his humanity. So he is the father of the son. And the son is the only begotten son, begotten of the father before all ages. But the second part speaks according to his manhood. Of course, we don't separate like Nostorius between his divinity and his humanity. That's why in this psalm he said, My father, my God. My father, my God. So he is his father by nature, 
He is his God by incarnation. Again, the father is the father to the son by nature. And he is God to the son by incarnation. And he is the rock of my salvation because he is his strength and his defense. Rock of my salvation. Verse 27. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Highest of the kings of the earth. This can be applied only to Christ. David was the youngest son of Jesse, but he became the firstborn by God because God chose him to be a king. But this verse applied in a perfect sense to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the true firstborn, the begotten from of the Father before all ages. Also, he is the firstborn from the dead, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we read also in Hebrew chapter 1 verse 2, he is appointed heir of all things that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Also, Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. He is the king of kings. As he said, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Verse 28, My mercy I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall stand firm with him. So, if we apply this verse This mercy was given to David's house. And also the covenant was promised to David's house. As we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, when God spoke to Nathan. But again, this verse we can apply it to Christ. Because this mercy is for his body. Who is the body of Christ? Us, the church. So, when the father proclaimed his pleasure in his only begotten son, during the baptism and transfiguration. And this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. So he is pleased also in the church because the church is the body of Christ and he will keep his mercy to the church forever. And God also will be faithful in his promises and is standing firm in his covenant with his church. The mercy of God appeared in the remission of sins, and this mercy is permanent, and God's covenant cannot be changed or cancelled. God made with humanity two covenants, the old covenant that vanished away because it was replaced with a better covenant, as we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So, for the sake of Christ, this new covenant stands firm. For it was concluded in Christ because Christ is the mediator, as St. Paul said in Hebrews, he is a mediator of a better covenant. Verse 29 His seed also I will make to endure forever 
and his throne at the days of heaven. In verse 29, explain how God intends to keep his mercy forever for David. How? Because God will give David seed. This seed is Christ, and Christ endure forever. And this promise uh, to David is only fulfilled through the forever reign of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So, I will make his seed to endure forever. The seed of David was Christ. And his throne is the throne of Christ as days of heaven. If we are speaking about the earthly throne, the temporal throne of David, it's vanished. So his throne as the days of heaven can be applied only on the throne of Christ. His throne means his kingdom shall have no end, as we say in the creed. But what does it mean at the days of heaven? means as long as there is heaven, and God actually established the heaven forever and ever, because it's the throne of God. So this means his kingdom shall have no end. Then, from verse 30 to verse 34, the psalm explained how the sins of David's children will bring chastisement to them, but they will not annul the promise to David. So, the sins of descendant of David deserve discipline, but they will never change the promises or the covenant that God made to David. Verse 30. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgment, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. So he said, if your children and your descendant forsake my commandment, did not obey me, I will punish them in order to repent. But my mercy, I will never take from them. And my promises will never fail. So, There is a very, very beautiful hope to all of us here. Our unfaithfulness cannot make void the faithfulness of God. So even when we become unfaithful to him, he cannot be unfaithful. Otherwise, he will deny himself. So he may modify the course of its working. He may discipline us with rod, but he will never change his promises. That's why he said, if your children and your descendants don't walk in my judgment, don't obey God's commandment, uh, and the same can be applied not only the children of David, but the children of Christ. We, when we sin and forsake his law, if we don't attend to God's commandment as we should, or if we become careless in our observance of the law of God and our obedience, even the doctrine of the gospel 
which may be said to be forsaken when we become indifferent to the word of God and deny it, <coughs> this disobedience and evil doing may provoke the anger of God. He may punish these people because there is no partiality with God. But his mercy will never change. If his mercy is exalted, then by his justice and righteousness does not accept fellowship with iniquity. Why he disciplines us? Because his justice and righteousness does not accept any fellowship with iniquity. This discipline by stripes and rod in order to bring us back to the right way. If we divert from the divine faithfulness, God wants to restore us back. So this rod and these stripes are not for our destruction, but for our reformation. That's what David himself has experienced when he became comfortable with sin. So God actually disciplined David, not to destroy him, but for his own salvation. God actually proves his fatherhood toward us without renouncing his fatherhood when he punishes us. You who are parents, because you are faithful to your children, you discipline them and you punish them when they drift away because you love them, because you care about them. As we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And as described in the promise to David, God would never completely take his mercy, his covenant love, from the house of David. Yes, he may discipline us, but he will never take his mercies away from us. He would remain faithful to his covenant and his word. So we can read this literally about the children of David. If his son forsake my law, so his sons can be literally about children of David, or we can take it actually in a prophetic way about the children of Christ. So the children of David literally were not allowed to fail, but were continued on until in the fullness of time there was born into the world of David's seed in David's city, one in whom all the promises made to David could be accomplished in the uttermost fullness when Christ was born. For the sake of Christ, the mercies of God is laid up for us because we are the body of Christ. And God said, I will not utterly take it from him. Why God will not take his mercy from us because for the sake of Christ. We are the body of Christ. So because we are in Christ, God will continue to be merciful and faithful to us. And according to St. Augustine, although the talk here is concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, I will not utterly take from him, him is Jesus, nor allow my faithfulness to fail toward Jesus. But we are the body of Christ. So St. Augustine said, although the talk is about Christ, but it concerns the body of Christ, the church. 
For example, when Saul of Tarsus persecuted the church, the Lord Jesus Christ did not say to him, Why are you persecuting my people or my believer or my saints? He said, Why are you persecuting me? Because you are the body of Christ. He refers all what happened to the church to himself personally. So there is encouragement for us here to hope and to repent. If we take in the thought that God will never forget his mercies toward us and his forgiveness never fail and our sins will be completely forgiven because of his mercies, this will give us hope to repent. Verse 34, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Mean, as he doesn't change in his nature, then his love is unchangeable, his counsels are not changeable, his purposes are not changeable. So he will not change his promise. He will not modify its condition or withdraw it. Any word came from the lips of the Lord. It shall stand precisely as it was when he uttered it. What God promises will be exactly performed. Verse 35. Once I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David, his seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever, like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Salam. From verse 35 to 37, God given a reason for his wishing to fulfill the promise he made of establishing the kingdom of David. And the reason why, because he swore to it, as we read in verse 35. Once I have sworn, so God, if he swore, he will not lie. So he swore to it, he promised firmly he would never take it back. But why he said once I have sworn, means once for all, a single oath. Oath once taken by God, make it certain. And the word once implies the unchangeability of God, the immutability of God. He doesn't change. He has never changed and will never change. One oath of God's mouth is equivalent to countless oaths of others. God doesn't need to repeat his oath. God is the eternal source of holiness, and holiness is his nature. So, if God were to break his promises, meaning his holiness is compromised, and he will not allow that to happen. That's why God will never lie. He cannot lie. It's contrary to his being. It's contrary to his nature. Otherwise, he would deny himself. God is not a man that he should lie. It is contrary to his character and his truth. His seed shall endure forever. Verse 36. And his throne as the sun before me. Means what? These are the words of the oath. God has sworn. He will not deceive David. He will not lie to David. 
that his son, Jesus Christ, shall live forever, and the kingdom of his son will be everlasting kingdom. Also can be understood the preservation of everyone of the spiritual seed of Christ. God will preserve us and we will live eternally with him. Or can be understood of the duration of the church throughout all the ages. The church will continue forever until the second coming of Christ. God confirms with an oath because there are sometimes we doubt God. So God doesn't need to swore or to make an oath, but this oath was made for our weakness because sometimes we doubt his promises. So God confirmed his promises with an oath that we may be firmly believed and have no doubt in his promises. God's promises to David regarding his royal house and the reigning Messiah to come from that house was constant, like the sun and the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. So, as the sun, every morning we see it, the moon forever established, then the promises of God that his seed will endure forever and his throne forever will be everlasting. It's like the sun and the moon. We can see them every day and every night. But what did he mean by even like the faithful witness in the sky? First, when he said, the sun before me, the sun before me, signified that the kingdom of Christ and through it the church of Christ would be visible, remarkable, noticeable. Nothing is brighter or more beautiful than the sun by the day. In the same way, the the church of Christ will be visible, remarkable, noticeable, beautiful, like how we see the sun every morning. And some people say the moon is about militant church, the church here on earth, still struggling. And the sun is the sun of righteousness. So we have our light, like the moon, reflect the light of the sun on the earth. So we reflect the sun, the light of the sun of righteousness to the world. Again, who is the faithful witness in the sky? Is it the sun or the moon? Or is it the fixed law of nature which are appealed to it in Jeremiah chapter 31 and chapter 33? You know, there is fixed law of nature. Every morning sun rise, moon by night. As a symbol of the permanence of God's covenant with Israel and with David. So when we see the sun and the moon every day and every night, in the same way the covenant of God is permanent. But the real meaning of the faithful witness in the sky, the witness here is God himself, who thus confirm his promises with a final attestation. And there are many verses referred to God as witness. For example, the first commentator see the faithful witness is Christ. For example, in Job 16:19, surely even now my witness is in heaven. 
And the Lord says by Jeremiah, Indeed I know and am a witness, says the Lord. Jeremiah 29:23. And it is directly applied to Christ in the book of Revelation. Christ is described as the faithful and true witness. Revelation 1, verse 5 and 3, verse 14. Also Isaiah said, I have given him Christ as witness to my people. Isaiah 55, 4. And Jesus Christ himself said in John 18, 37, For this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. He is rightly compared to the sun and the moon, which rule the day and night, because Christ who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep like the sun and the moon. He knows all things and does not need other witnesses when he sits in judgment. Then verse 37 ended by word Silah. Silah is a pause for meditation, musical pause for meditation. So it's a sort of musical notation, perhaps signaling a pause to contemplate in God's love and God's care, his mercy and his faithfulness. This is the end of our Bible study tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.